This is the Pridecast, a special edition of OA On Air, where we have lined up leaders in the LGBTQ community to talk about the 50th anniversary of Boston Pride and the issues and struggles that remain for the LGBTQ community, especially for communities of color and for transgender individuals. And we will talk about what's happening to Pride in the era of the coronavirus pandemic. Join me in welcoming our guests, Linda DeMarco, Boston Pride president. Linda began volunteering for Pride in 1998 and has overseen the growth in the organization and its events over the past 10 plus years. Mark Crone, longtime volunteer for the History Project that documents and preserves LGBTQ history in New England. Mark has also written for Boston Pride's Pride Guide and many other publications. Grace Sterling Stowell, Executive Director of Bagley. Grace has been an activist and leader in the social justice and gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, and queer communities for over 40 years. And Judah Dorrington, former chairperson of Black Pride New England and director of LGBTQ services at Wellesley College. Judah's an activist organizer in the LGBTQ community since the 1980s, promoting cultural competence, communication, engagement through Dorrington and Saunders, LLC. Currently, Judah is the chairperson of NAACP's LGBTQ committee in Atlantic City branch. That's a lot of letters there, but we love them. Um, so let us begin with the subject that's been front and center for the past week, the demonstrations and protests over the killing of George Floyd by police officers in Minneapolis and the other murders of black and brown individuals, including Tony McDade a black transgender person who was shot and killed by police in Tallahassee, Florida. Boston Pride, like many organizations, has condemned these acts of violence by police against black and brown people and noted that the LGBTQ community is no stranger to the systemic racism, homophobia, transphobia, and sexism that's shown starkly through inhuman acts of violence committed by some members of law enforcement that have happened over the decades. So Judah, what do these events mean to you as you see the protests, demonstrations, and public outpouring of emotions and calls for action? Well, I'll tell you, um, Anne, what it means to me and what I'm seeing is that I'm seeing a lot of the same things that everybody else is seeing. I'm just seeing it from a different vantage point. And my vantage point is as one of being, being a person who, is exp who experiences uh, this kind of overt institutional, structural, and systemic racism. You know, I see that another black person was murdered at the hands of those who are given the authority to protect and serve all of our citizens. And what I see and what I'm experiencing is a media that's focused on the fire instead of the accelerant, which is the structural, structural, institutional, and systemic racism. Um, part of what part of what I'm also seeing is that people are grieving and people are mourning. And for the black community, this isn't something that just started with George or just started with Trayvon, but it's something that it's a mourning and a grief that is in our DNA 
as black people ever since the enslavement period. We've watched people killed. We've watched our people be killed. We've watched our people be murdered. We've watched ourselves being oppressed um, all the way through the civil rights movement and up until this, to this present day. We've seen peaceful demonstrations that have turned into rubber hoses, um, rubber hoses and, and, and water hoses and tear gas and, and dogs and, <laughs> and government section incarceration and murder. Um, that's, that's what I'm seeing. That's what I'm experiencing. Um, I'm in shock and awe, as a lot of other people are. One of the things that I'm experiencing is, is white guilt and shame for the silence, you know, that people have been silenced and we all, we already know what silence equals for LGBTQ people. And it's been the same for, um, for people of color. Well, one thing I did want to go back to, because we are talking about the 50th anniversary uh, of Boston Pride, is that you were involved in Boston Pride um, in the 1980s and had a long career volunteering for Boston Pride. So tell us about how you first started to get involved with it and what, you know, what, why, what was your motivation back then? Well, I first got involved in Boston Pride. Uh, back around 1981, my first experience was as a drummer in a reggae band that performed at Pride. And um, after that, in, in my communities, um, not many people were participating in Pride. And it wasn't for a while until um, I started, I got involved really in joining the committee when um, a band that I was with called Sweet Black Molasses had been heard all around the city. It was a black lesbian um, troupe. And we did, um, we did um, instrumental music um, underneath of poetry. <laughs> this is back in the eighties before Gil Scott and Jill Scott and some other people. But we were heard and people wanted us to perform on the main stage. Up until then, there hadn't been a person of a people of color performance um, artist that uh, performed on the main stage. And so Sabrina Taylor and Eric Pliner, Sabrina being a black woman who was the chair of pride at the time, uh, wanted us to perform. And we got so much, um, so many obstacles to being able to perform and being on that main stage. And so when I finally had to go to the pride meeting and I saw a, an all white board and an all white committee, I said, hmm, <laughs> there may be something here. And so I joined, I joined the, the committee in order to bring the voices of black and brown people and other people of color to the table for, uh, for Boston Pride. And I did that um, as a committee member and, um, and then as kind of a community liaison between communities of color and Boston Pride for many, for many, many, many years. Well, we really will talk a little bit more about what you've been doing too um, and what 
your thoughts are on the 50th anniversary. But let, let me turn to let me turn to Mark Crow now. Uh, Mark, you, you record oral histories on the Boston area LGBTQ community. And are there examples of racism that you've discovered that go back many years when Boston Pride was the protest movement? Yeah, unfortunately, there are plenty. And I think there's a trope in our communities sometimes that because queer people come in every color and from every religion and from everywhere, that we have less of that problem than the the general population. But in fact, we have all the isms and phobias, including homophobia and transphobia that other uh, that the larger society has. And um, one of the things I, I talk to a lot of young people and they say that they don't mourn the gay bars closing as much because they didn't think they were all that welcome to all of their friends, including many trans people. Um, I spoke to a gentleman a, a number of years ago who was uh, worked at a longtime gay bar in Boston as a doorman. And he said that he was often asked by the management to limit the number of people of color entering. And there are two ways they would do it. They would ask for uh, identification. So if you had one, they'd ask for a second one. If you had two, they'd ask for a third. And then the second way that they would do it is they would impose dress codes, which were very big in the 70s in Boston. Um, and they, But they were both specific, suspiciously so, to cover the most popular trends uh, being worn by young people of color but also general, so that they could be used in a widespread way. So they would say, um, no athletic clothing, um, no athletic shoes. Um, so that could be interpreted in a very broad way. Um, and then going on to a, a more popular uh, bar for people of color and for everyone was uh, the 1270, which was disco and was a, uh, a, a big place in the 70s and 80s. Um, and black people did feel more comfortable there. But even there, um, there were sort of segregated to the second floor, you know, in the back. And, and um, this was uh, either by choice or by design or by whatever, but it was what it was. The, whereas the white patrons felt that they had ownership of all the floors and of all the bar. So I think we've, we've, we've danced and we've sung in our community, but not always together. Fascinating. Um, now, Grace, I'd like to hear from you because uh, you work with young LGBTQ people and you have said that this is the generation of activists. How do you think these current events have affected the youth that you work with and what's motivating them regarding the intersectional approaches they see to social justice? Sure. Uh, yes, as an executive director of Bagley, the Boston Alliance of LGBTQ Youth, uh, you know, this is an organization that serves significant numbers of black and brown and other LGBT youth of color. And uh, I've often said that the, this most current generation of young people has more access to more information than e than any generation, uh, previous generation in the history of the world through, through social media and the internet and so forth. And because of that, they're smart, they're informed, uh, they have higher expectations uh, and, and, and a lot of that is around expectations that they uh, be valued and affirmed for all of their identities and that they don't have to choose uh, whether they're going to be part of one community and check in part of another part of who they are at the door or vice versa. And so for LGBT youth of color in particular, you know, in this, especially in this moment, 
you know, in a lot of ways, they're seeing what we've inherited, what they've inherited uh, over generations of racism, institutional and structural racism. Uh, I, I can't help but think as, as we're talking about the 50th anniversary of Pride, that it's often said that the, the modern gay liberation movement started with um, uh, the events at the, the rebellion at Stonewall. And and certainly, but I think it's important for us to acknowledge that there have been, uh, there, there had been resistance long before that in our community uh, and, and in many ways patterned after the Black Civil Rights Movement, the anti-war movement, the feminist movement, and so forth. And, and particularly, Black and Brown LGBT folks and transgender women in particular who have led the way. And so the young people of our community are carrying that forward. They're leading the marches. They're leading the protests. They're saying enough, you know, that, you know, what's that phrase? You know, we, we haven't come this far to have only come this far. And so they want to see a different world than they, and they, they deserve a better world than the one that we've had. And we, we certainly hope that they will help us lead the way into a better world in the future. And I commend you for all the work that you're doing with those young people, Grace. It's really great. Um, now, this question is for Linda DeMarco. Now, Linda, I know uh, you became involved with Boston Pride <clears throat> many years ago. And I know you're familiar with, the, uh, with our guests here through a lot of different connections that you've made. But how have you seen the changes in the LGBT community over the years through the lens of Boston Pride when you first became involved and what has become now? Uh, yeah, certainly. I mean, uh, Judah kind of uh, opened the door for me, uh, Judah. Uh, Linda, get involved. <laughs> um, meeting for Boston Pretzel. <laughs> <laughs> And, um, you know, I started off just wanting to be a volunteer and, uh, Judah, you know, uh, you know, God love her. She may, let's have a, a stronger voice and taught me, uh, for the years that she stayed with me to, to, to make a, a stronger voice and, and, and keep it going. And I find myself still there, um, working, you know, I've worked with Grace for many years, I think Bagley celebrating their 40th anniversary uh, of yeah. being part of uh, Pride, right, Grace? So, yep, 40 years. Yeah, so we, it, we've, there's been a lot of change when, uh, from certainly when I started in the, in the late, you know, late 90s, 98, um, and to now. Uh, and so <clears throat> I think the, the era of the internet has really really exploded it and got the information out about Boston pride and what we've done. Um, whereas before it was, I remember sitting in my back seat doing something on a pen and piece of paper, trying to do a lineup. So now it's all automated. And so mm -hmm. we've come a long way as far as that. And we've come a long way from perceptions of, of how our community is. Um, I feel there more families now, uh, whereas before they were in the shadows, and now we have more families, not only within the, the our community, but our allies are now coming out and supporting us, which is when I first started, the allies were not on the side of the street. It was just part of our community who didn't want to march. So, mm -hmm. um, and now yeah. there are more families that are out there. Um, and yeah, people say there's a lot of more corporations out there, but those corporations, not necessarily are all sponsors, and it's really... Optics are, are a funny thing. People see a corporation with, you know, a bunch of employees with their company name on it because they're proud of their company being supportive and being diverse and inclusive, but doesn't mean they're a, a sponsor, but they're supporting their employees to be out and 
open in their company. So before they weren't, they weren't willing to do that. And so now, you know, John Hancock mar- marches on the street with us, whereas before they would never even done that. So there's a lot of changes that um, have progressed through the years. I just feel that the, uh, history needs to be included in the history books and our, our history is not included in the history books. So that's my next goal is to make sure that not just the pride movement being in the history books, I want the whole history to be part of it. But there are so many milestones that have come across through the years that we need to make sure they're, they're centerpiece and people learn from it. So the youth that, that Grace works with, they know and they learn the correct history. And, you know, it's not just gay marriage. There's all these challenges that we had to fight for, for throughout the years. And that's part of history. And it's not in our history books. Just Stonewall is in our history books. It's all part of history and we learn from history and we don't want to repeat it. So that's why it's important. Our next goal for Boston in the next 50 years is to make sure that we're not forgotten and that the pride movement is moving forward for the right reason and not for the forgotten. People call it a celebration because we're celebrating our 50th. It's something to celebrate, but it's also something to mourn because we're still fighting for something that over 50 years, we still haven't, we still haven't completed our mission. And so, but it's going to continue until uh, equality is across the board. So I'm going, I'm going to go to Mark, but first I want to just ask one com- one question and anyone can answer this. And I'm interested in hearing what Judah says. We did have a call a few days ago to talk about um, this podcast and we did ca- talk about the incidents happening um, today in the world and how it does make everybody angry and you have to displace that anger. You have the right to, you know, protest and, and be mad. But then what is the next step to actually be the change and affect that change? So uh, I just want to touch upon that. I think, Judy, you made a good point when we talked before about to make the change, you have to actually get involved in things. And I know this panel, you all give it yourself. But Judah, if you just want to talk a little bit about that, you have to make that change. And if you want want to do it, you have to do the hard work that you need to do. That's a great question, Ann. And I think that um, my best answer to that is that in order to be culturally competent in our society, that, you know, oftentimes people think I should join a group. I should I should support this cause, support that cause, have meetings, uh, uh, do diversity work. The first place to start is socially. Get friends who are different than you are. If you have friends, you know, create a network, your own network of people who, who become your friends. Linda and I became friends. And that's how the work that we did and the work that Linda's doing now and that I'm doing um, has prospered because we became friends. People who are friends, you know, or have some interest in building a relationship even beyond racism and skin color or diversity or however we're different, end up learning a whole lot about the people and about their community. And so for me, this is where people need to start. Mm-hmm. If anyone else wants to chime in, I think we all talked about, sometimes we all need to be un- be made uncomfortable to really start changing. 
Yeah, this is Grace. I think it's important for to recognize that we all we all need to step up as allies. That that every single one of us has parts of our identities that are oppressed, and other parts of our identities that are more privileged. And and we're each in a position of being an ally to another person, another community, another movement. And we should be active allies, not just uh, uh, you know not not discriminating, but rather actively stepping up and being proactive and saying, what can we do? What can white people do to support? Black and brown and other people of color? What can men do to support women? What can cisgender people do to support trans and non-binary folks and so forth? And I'm not sure that our community, and this isn't unique to Boston, but certainly, uh, you know, in Boston or Massachusetts, has always been very good at that because our movements have tended to be siloed. And again, back to young people, you know, they're, they're looking at this from an intersectional perspective. You know, they have many identities and they're not about to check one just, just to be part of one community. And so I think it's important for all of us to recognize that and, and, and our organizing and movements need to move forward with that lens. I think another thing about that, too, is that um, people need to stand up. They need to speak up. The Holocaust happened because people didn't stand up and didn't speak up. And we've been in a Holocaust as LGBTQ people and also as communities of color for eons. And people have called themselves allies and have not spoken up, have not stood up have not voted up, have not attended the earlier protests and shown their faces. I, you know, I felt I, I hated to see the protests and quote unquote riots as they called it, but I was happy to see that it was not all black and brown people. Mm-hmm. That there were allies, there were allies of all races and faces who were involved in this struggle. Because it's also about poor people. You know, it's also about class and economics. Mm -hmm. And that the young people, again, they're not afraid to mix with people who are different than they are. And then we all become one. I think we all have to take lessons in that, too. Yes, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, that's really, that's, you know, what Judith is saying is really, really true. You know, for, for us at Boston Pride, we've learned, our you know, moving forward with the Black Pride and Latino Pride, what we've done is try to get out into the neighborhoods more or out so we're, yes. it's more accessible. So we don't just say, oh, come to a meeting here. We go out and we set, we have our meetings out so people can have the opportunity to come and have their voice at the table so we can hear different voices and different ideas. And we worked at restructuring our budget to make sure that more money goes into that programming to help them. So if they want to do other activities, because as Judah said, sometimes people don't want to, they don't want to just be, they want to have their voice heard, but they don't want to do, they don't want to come to the meeting and join the meeting, but they want their voice heard. So you have to give them that platform. So we, we find it really hard because sometimes we end up with the same people doing pride over again. And people are so used to seeing those same faces, but they don't see the faces in the background who actually we listen to and the voices we listen to. And so I think it's, Again, optics optics are, are a strange thing that that happen. We have a lot of voices that we listen to, and we try to learn and always um, uh, be open minded and 
we want everybody to speak up. We want, you know, we want to hear from the youth, as Grace said, they want to be able to come to the table and hear their voices and then go out in the street. They don't necessarily want to be part of the committee and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I, I think that, you know, and if anybody wants that information on how they can connect to Boston Pride, I think they just go to the website because you have all the information listed about your committee meetings and your meetings in the neighborhoods. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, and they can they don't have to join the committee, but they can call in because we, we've kind of restructured it so we can hear their voices. So if they can't come, they can call in. Okay. Um, and in the age of technology, let's take advantage of that so we can have everybody's opinion and we can listen. Mm-hmm. And we're and we're also trying to make more um what do you call them? The town halls. We don't we don't want to call them town halls, but they're discussions, community discussions, so we can get everyone's opinion. Mm-hmm. So everything changes as, you know, due to, we wouldn't do, we wouldn't be doing that years ago. We wouldn't be able to no. do it. But now we're able to do that. And I think it's yes. important to hear people's opinions and hear their voices because my, my experience is different from the next person's experience. And I want to be able to hear that person's experience. Mm-hmm. I and I think, just- um, what, one thing that's important about what you said, Linda, is that it's not just hearing the voices. People have gone a ways to do that, like Grace was saying, going out into the neighborhoods. But we have to develop leadership among people of color as far as pride and LGBTQ movement is concerned. There are lots of talented people who could act, who, who would want to and could actually lead in this movement. And we've yet to tap into that great resource and develop that leadership, especially among our young people, being visible as well as vocal. Exactly. So, yeah, uh, I welcome um, new voices and new new faces, and hopefully, we can we can get that. And it's just such a, a difficult thing that uh, not just Boston Pride has, to be honest with everyone here. A lot of pride. No. Across no. the country have that same same problem, um, and I, I, I just don't know the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Mark, were you going to say something? I know that I did want to ask you a little bit about back in the day when um, we are talking about the 50th anniversary now, and you know what the early days were like uh, in around 1970. So. Um, it's, you can address that or if sure. you have something else you wanted to talk about. Thanks. Sure. No, I just wanted to add that I think the, the historical record needs to be complete as well. And right. um, this idea that being a queer person is Will and Grace or, you know, Ellen, you know, nothing against any of them, but it's, it's, a, it's a very diverse, broad community with an incredibly rich history and it has to include everyone. Um, we can't properly teach the next generation um, if they don't have a complete history. It's not just a history of gay white men doing, you know, heading an organization in the 70s or 80s. Um, but in any case, in answer to your question, I also wanted to throw a plug in for Compton's Cafeteria Riot because Grace mentioned people uh, doing things uh, before Stonewall, and that was 1965 in San Francisco. And the, um, that was led by uh, trans people and drag queens and others. And it, it's it, just Google it if you're interested. It's a fascinating story. There's also a film about it. Um, but in Boston in 1970, it was, you know, in many ways like it is today in the sense that it's multiple cities depending on where you live and what your experience is. It's highly segregated, uh, especially back then, um, a very traditional city. 
kind of buttoned up. But at the same time, it's always been a hotbed of progressive movements, right? The women's movement, black power movement. And in 1970, the fledgling queer movement was in existence. There was Daughters of Blightus, there's Homophile Union of Boston, the Student Homophile League. And then an offshoot of that was the Gay Liberation Front. Um, at BU, there was the first college uh, queer student group uh, that was officially recognized by the university. And then at MIT, there was one about the same time, but it wasn't officially recognized. Um, and then July 15th, 1970 happened. Um, a large anti-war demonstration took place in Boston Common. Over 60,000 people attended. Um, and in those days, if you had one umbrella cause, it was anti-Vietnam. I mean, everybody, it seemed almost everybody went to those, right? Um, and so, but for the queer community, this was really a coming out, uh, if you will, of, of the movement, um, because the Gay Liberation Front brought a giant banner to that rally. And it said in a slightly humorous way, bring the boys home, Gay Liberation Front. And it was slightly suggestive, bring them home for what? You know, um, the straight protesters stared at the sign. Who are these people? Were they invited? Um, and it caused controversy, both within the uh, queer community and outside. Uh, people wanted to know, well, what do you mean, bring the boy? I mean, yes, you want the war to end, or is this suggestive? What is this? Um, but it, it achieved its goal because it got noticed. Uh, and that was one of the first times. But of course, uh, the June before then, June of 1970, um, there was a small, there was a gathering in Boston Common, and Boston being Boston, instead of having a giant march downtown to commemorate Stonewall one year later, we had teach-ins because Boston's about teaching and classroom stuff, and that's what we apparently do here. Um, and so there's, there was a, uh, some teach-ins um, at that time at St. John's on Beacon Hill and um, at the uh, Charles Street Meeting House. And then there were also, before this too, in the spring of 70, um, there was something that was very endemic to our community as well, dances. There were dances at the Charles Street Meeting House. There was a dance at Harvard uh, in the spring and winter of 1970. So things were happening. It was definitely happening. It was, it was that particular kind of Boston thing where lots of progressive pressure meeting a very traditional political and economic and racial structure. And then I, I believe that it was the it was the next year that there was actually more of a formal type of march. That's right. There was a march the next year, which began at Jacques, and um, you know, women were asking for very basic things like clean the bathroom. People, you know, give us a break. Um, and uh, women had a really tough time then because there were no uh, women's spaces really, um, so they had to share spaces not only with uh, gay men but also with straight men who would come in. Um, and and say inappropriate things. And there would be one bathroom in some bars because bars were men's territory in some ways. So um, yeah, it was it was uh, there was a, a march then. They marched to several locations, uh, state house, police headquarters, uh, an insurance company that would not insure gay people. So um, and I just want to go back to one quick thing about the dances. It was illegal in Boston for same-sex people to dance at that time. So this was, even though that some people did dance at the other side and um, before that the punch bowl a little bit, but it was not legal. So they would they would make sure that when the red light went on, they'd have a lighting system. They would make sure if the cops were coming in, they would stop dancing. So even something as basic as dancing was illegal. 
1970. That just amazes me uh, after being, you know, going to some fun tea dances here, there and everywhere too. You know, it's just like, yeah. I, you just can't even fathom it. It wasn't really that long ago. It was 50 no. years ago. It wasn't that long ago. Uh, Grace, I just wanted to ask you to touch upon the time uh, on your days as, as an early advocate and what it was like for you in the 1980s when you helped establish Bagley. Obviously, you saw a great need out there that wasn't being met and how that evolved. Well, um, Bagley, like so many organizations, came out of a history of organizing. And there were, uh, you know, Mark will know this, uh, some previous uh, youth groups. Uh, we would have just said gay youth groups then or gay lesbian youth groups. But uh, uh, before Bagley, uh, each only lasting a couple of years before they folded and was replaced by another. Uh, so there was uh, uh, Project Lambda, Boston Gay Youth, the Committee for Gay Youth, and so forth. Uh, but it was the young people who um, who were part of a the Committee for Gay Youth, uh, who wanted to have their own organization that was led by and for uh, young people. Uh, and so they created Bagley, the Boston Alliance of, back then we said gay and lesbian youth, but now we add all the other letters. And it was really modeled where youth were centered. Youth are, youth were uh, on the steering committee, youth were leading uh, their own uh, programming and their own pri priorities. And while Bagley has certainly grown uh, enormously over the last 40 years, and we have a, a board of directors and a staff and so on and so forth, uh, our youth leadership is still core to what we do. They still lead all of their programming. We have youth sitting on our board uh, uh, who are voting. And so, uh, you know, Bagley came out of that in many ways of a need where, where young people were feeling like the rest of the community was focused on adults, the bars that the, many of them were too young to get into, or adult priorities, adult organizations. And so they wanted a, a group that was their own. And of course, we We've been the model for everything else. You know, the, the other Agleys that have spread across the state for the GSAs and the school, for, there's certainly a lot of programming here in Boston and Massachusetts focusing on um, uh, LGBTQ young people. And so it's that spirit of activism and creating a space for yourself where uh, it didn't exist before. Well, I know that the youth are such a, a big part of the, the, the big participation in the parades, too. So and that's something that we're not going to be able to do until next year. So uh, I'm going to ask Linda to talk a little bit about uh, what Boston Pride is doing uh, this year in the light of the coronavirus pandemic and the postponement of, uh, of that fabulous parade and festival till next year. Linda. Um, yeah, we're we're doing the virtual uh, thing. Um, Pride is is always going to be in, in all of us. So uh, even though we're not going to be able to, to go on the street or, you know, um, go to some of the festival or our block parties or, you know, even our, our educational forums and, and, and so forth, we're trying to do as many as we can on online, virtually, um, working with the city for the flag raising that we have coming up. Uh, we're actually doing pride lights virtually simultaneously doing it virtually, but trying to get the lights in the park pink. Um, it's a challenge to do all this stuff. Um, it's not, and it's not easy as you think it is, but we're, we're going to make it happen and we're going to do a virtual festival as well. Um, and so we're doing the, we want to make sure that pride is on the top of folks' minds and uh, we're, we're working to illuminate the city in, in rainbow colors for the trying to get the month of June, but I don't think we can do that, but we're at least going to get um, the 5th through the 13th. 
some of the uh, iconic buildings like City Hall, the Zakem Bridge, um, the the Garden lit up, um, and the some of the folks to put their flags out in solidarity just to keep people on top of mind that Pride is June month and it's something to um, educate people of to keep us remembering that work is not done and. Um, so we're, and hopefully next year we can be out on the street and, and we can bring people together. It's really a tough time for our community to be secluded like this. And so we're trying really hard to make it possible for people to be able to be together, even though it is virtual, um, because it, it's something that you, you don't want to be. You don't want to be alone. You want to be to know that you're in it together and everyone uses the word we're in it together. But um, so that's what we're doing. And um, we're kind of... Um, doing like the, all the other prides are doing. We're participating in that global 2020 pride, which um, is uh, prides. I think there's 420 prides that have been canceled across the globe. And uh, I working with inner pride to um, make it a 24 hour pride celebration at the end of June to have each pride have a little, at least five or 10 minutes to talk about their pride. So people know what we're doing out in the streets and out around the world. So it's going to be exciting, but kind of not as exciting as it is if we're on the streets, but right. it is going to be exciting. And next year, wow, it's going to be amazing next year, I'm sure. Yes. Um, well, I, I had a surprise for the whole group to have fireworks this year, but I guess we'll have to wait till next year. Oh, well, that's going to be fun. Um, before we wrap up, uh, the question goes out to everyone. I know that, you know, what are your hopes and dreams for the next 50 years uh, for Boston Pride in the LGBTQ community? Well, for me, and I want more people to be involved, um, like we've been talking about, um, to step up and, and be not just be in the committee, but to help out on the board. And um, for the next, you know, we we're very fortunate to have new staff now. It's the very first time we just got them about six, six months ago. And so we're growing Boston Pride. We've made the investment in our community to have staff. And so we want to continue that growth. And we want to make sure that we help our fellow neighbors, our fellow marginalized communities, and to help us all work together for the end result, which is equality across the board. So that's that's my goal is to continue to give to our community to make it stronger. Anyone else have any thoughts? Well, I wanted to just mention, underscore what Linda said before, is that one of the best ways to protect um, young LGBTQ plus people from self-destructive behaviors and from uh, internalizing some of the stuff around them, uh, and this is true for any young person, is to know their history and to know that they come from very strong, creative, beautiful people. And um, this is we ha one of the ways that we were kept... Uh, down is by you know, keeping ourselves a secret from each other. We were not allowed yes. to congregate. We were not allowed to uh, to get to know one another. It was always a disgrace for us to talk about honestly about ourselves. Isn't that private? Don't talk about it. And um, I, I think we need to do just the opposite: is to talk about it and and to have young people know their history. And and by uh, by doing so, they also reach an appreciation for the heroic history of civil rights and women's rights and all the other movements that I hope we increasingly become a part of. Wonderful. Judah or Grace? Um, I'd like to just um, underscore what Mark said about history. 
that um, for, for communities of color and young people, knowing that, that there are black and brown LGBTQ people who have done some great and marvelous things. And in the Boston history, um, more about E. Denise Simmons, who was the first out black lesbian of a major city, Cambridge, Massachusetts, in the United States. She doesn't get the props that she deserves. The other thing that I wanna see for, um, for Boston Pride is to make more linkages with um, of color organizations and to lend the resources that you have to, um, to help the causes that we are fighting against. We are dealing with, we're still dealing with HIV AIDS, everybody is. And we wanna be able to see that, um, that we can join forces with resources. It's not just showing up and speaking up, but resources to our communities, our LGBTQ organizations, supporting organizations for the youth like the theater offensive and their out youth theater. Now, a lot is learned and a lot of lives are saved through the theater offensive. Great. Just some plugs. <laughs> Race, you got the last word on this one. <laughs> uh, I'd like to see, yes, uh, echoing what the others have said and, and uh, following the leadership of the young people, especially in this present moment, many of whom are leading the marches and and that are happening right now in the streets and drawing their leadership, their perspective, their experience, and to make sure that our movement is more intersectional, more connected to all movements for social justice. Yes, yes. They're not separate siloed, you're over here and I'm over there, but really uh, we are all supporting each other for for uh, common liberation. If, if, if the one of us is not liberated, then none of us are. And I think that that spirit is what we need uh, to finally move forward in a different kind of way. That's a powerful words from all of you. Well, I want to thank my panel. You're all wonderful for participating in the Pridecast. Congratulations to Boston Pride on its 50th anniversary. And I wish everyone happy Pride. Happy Pride. Happy Pride. Happy Pride. Happy, Pride. happy 50th for Boston. Yes, yep. happy 50th. Dan Morris, Vice President at O'Neill and Associates, and I'm honored to be joined today by Massachusetts Attorney General Mara Healy to talk about the 50th anniversary of Boston Pride. Healy was first elected to the Office of Attorney General in 2014, and upon taking office, was the first openly gay state attorney general in the country. Welcome, Attorney General Mara Healy. Hey, great to be with you, Suzanne. Thank you so much. So. Tell us about what Boston Pride Week usually means for you. Well, you know, I've been going to Pride for uh, years now. Um, it's a it's a really wonderful celebration. I think it's an opportunity for us to show our love and support for the LGBTQ community. Um, and I know as a young person coming out, it was an important place for me to to go and be able to be seen and heard and see people like me. Um, 
I'm sad that we're not going to be able to have the parade this year, but I know that nevertheless, the, the celebration will continue, but I'll certainly miss running around and, and the energy of the crowd. I, I love to run the route. We always have a great team with us and, uh, it's just really, really about um, love and joy. And, you know, uh, those are things that we need to to carry with us, especially in this time when a lot of people are, are hurting right now here and, and across this country. Yeah, I've, I have seen you on the route and I know how much energy you bring to it, running, <clears throat> running down it. And it's usually or it's often a hot day. So I'm always uh, impressed <laughs> by your ability to well, keep I running just, through it. I just get really excited. It's really fun to see people. And, you know, it pride is also the chance where you see people maybe you haven't seen, you know, in years or, you know, that you only see sort of at pride. And it's just, it's just a really cool experience. Um, it's changed over the years, right? I mean, it, it's become, you see many more kids, um, families, um, than, than I saw in the, in the earlier days. Um, but it, it's always, you know, it's always about just joy and happiness and, and having fun. Um, you know, back in the days I used to go to the block parties afterwards. I don't do that now, but, uh, you know, just a, a really fun, a fun celebration and an important celebration. Absolutely. Um, so what does the 50th anniversary of Boston Pride mean to you? Well, to me, it, um, it means a few things. It's a reminder of how far we've come. I think pride, you know, originally, <clears throat> sorry, uh, it means a few things. And I think that for one, pride is about, uh, originally, I think it was about, um, I'd say defiance or protest. Maybe that's too strong a word, but it was about, you know, people um, coming together and standing up for, for their rights. And, you know, it's more these days, I think, about celebrating. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's always been about celebrating, but you know, now there are just a lot more people that that bring their families um, uh, to the event. Uh, we have a lot more members who are supportive of the LGBT community, but aren't LGBTQ themselves who go. I think here in Massachusetts, it has particular meaning, and Boston Pride has particular significance. We should be so proud, you know, as we look back to the 50 years, celebrating our role in the movement for equality. We've led the way in terms of marriage equality, transgender rights, access to parentage. Um, you know, it was 16 years ago that that the state became the first to recognize marriage equality and really set in motion um, something incredible that, that you know, went around the world. Um, it's not to say there isn't a lot to do. There is a lot to do uh, in in this area, um, but it should be an affirmation of, to me, you know, what it looks like when people come together, um, people who have demonstrated tremendous courage um, in the face of adversity. I think about, you know, the early days, and I wasn't here 50 years ago, um, uh, but you know, having heard the stories, you know. We know people uh, and, and we're grateful to all the trailblazers who went before us. We're grateful to all the trailblazers who went before us, who lived their lives with courage and fearlessness um, in the face of, of real oppression and injustice. And, you know, because of their courage, um, 
a lot more is possible for the rest of us these days. And I think it's our job to pay it forward and make sure that we're continuing to to do everything we can to uh, fight for greater equality and justice across society. So as you mentioned, we had to reschedule uh, this year's parade and festival till next year when the 50th anniversary celebration will happen in the way that, that people are accustomed to um, for pride happening mm-hmm. um, because of the pandemic. And it's brought up a lot of parallels to other times of crisis, particularly um, the beginning of the HIV AIDS crisis. Talk a little bit about the resiliency of the LGBTQ plus community and, and how you see that. Yeah, it's been interesting to talk to, to to friends about this because I think, you know, there has been discussion about uh, the, the AIDS crisis. And, you know, of course, at that time, it was such a silent killer and, and not uh, and not talked about tremendous stigma. Um, you know, we think about the, those days. I, it's interesting, of course, Larry Kramer uh uh, passed away earlier this week, and you know he's just so emblematic of that of that fight. Um, but you know uh, we've had a lot of conversations talking about the fact that we as a community have faced um, a lot of difficult times, and you know uh, from everything from the fear of coming out to our families to fighting for for basic uh, equality, you know right to marry, right to feel safe in the workplace, the right to be parents. Um, this is a community that's been fighting literally for their lives for, uh, for, uh, for a long time. And through that, we, we understand and come to know the resilience of the LGBTQ community, uh, which continues to stand strong and is about always recognizing and demanding um, the respect uh, for the dignity and, and worth of, of every person. So, you know, I think it's, it's a time where we can go back to the well and and draw on um, those experiences uh, through kind of a a psyche that's almost passed down uh, generation to generation, um, knowing and and internalizing that, you know, we have been here before we have faced adversity and we will, we will, uh, we will get through this. Um, But it's, you know, it's heartbreaking now too, to think about what those, uh, patients and, and people with, with, with AIDS went through and how they yeah. suffered um, yeah. and how they suffered in ways that, that are so different from the suffering that we see today. I mean, it's true that people, and it's, this is incredibly sad with this pandemic, so many people dying alone in hospitals, dying alone in nursing homes where they can't be with their family or loved ones. It, and then I think about you know the, the AIDS crisis and how many were afraid to talk to family uh, that they were that they were even ill that they weren't yeah. feeling well that they were sick um, and then of course went on to suffer and and so many died so I think it's a I, I think it's an important reflection for our community to make and hopefully more importantly for it. The, the community beyond the LGBTQ community because there are people right now who are marginalized, who are devalued. Um, and we should remember that, you know, just as it was so wrong for society to, to devalue um, our, our brothers and sisters uh, as they suffered through the AIDS crisis, think about the people today who are suffering in our marginalized communities 
and how incumbent it is on all of us to to fight that. Yeah, and I keep thinking about the fact that it took years for uh, for the the drugs to be developed that made um, HIV/AIDS more of a chronic condition um, than you know the death sentence that it was in the early days, and the you know the expectation that we can just resume normal our normal lives during this pandemic. Well, I feel like the LGBTQ community knows better than ever that, you know, that's that's not reality. Right. No, it's a, it's a great point, and it's a it's a point too about priorities. Um, yeah. It uh, it took a long time, and and here we're having you know everybody uh, as they should you know work and rush hard to to try to market and get to market with a vaccine. You know, it it is a statement about uh, who we value, who we value in in community. Right. So you mentioned a little bit earlier, of course, about Massachusetts being the first state to um, to pass marriage equality. Um, so let's just talk a little bit. And of course, you're the attorney general of the state of Massachusetts. So let's talk a little bit about um, state laws versus federal laws in terms of the protection of rights for the LGBTQ community. How does Massachusetts compare, especially during this time when federal laws are being challenged or, you know, federal laws themselves aren't 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 as protective of rights as they, they should be? Yeah, I mean, I am um, I am grateful to live in Massachusetts um, and and grateful for all the work that has been done by the activists, uh, the lawyers, um, the lawmakers to ensure that we have something that is uh, far stronger in terms of uh, protections for the LGBTQ community. And I'm proud of Massachusetts, and we should continue to lead the way uh, when it comes to um, equality. But, you know, the federal picture is incredibly bleak. Uh, Massachusetts was stronger to begin with um, compared to federal laws, but under the Trump administration, where you've seen just a, a systematic rollback of equal protection and, um, you know, important policies and rules that were there to protect the safety and, and well-being of uh, members of the LGBT community and to fundamentally accord them, accord us equal treatment of the law, have been have been scraped. Um, and, you know, they just, they just, every day, well, not every day, but it feels like every day, my office is suing the Trump administration to fight yet another uh, terrible rollback. And so, you know, I think that people here in Massachusetts should feel good about the fact that, that they're here and, you know, our role in that, whether it's, you know, from the Goodrich days to, uh, to ending DOMA, uh, the work that we've done around um, protecting the rights of, of, of uh, transgender people, uh, equal access to parentage, protections against hate violence, um, and, and the like. But you know, we also have more work to do, and I think that you know we should really make sure we we really, um, as the federal government is is taking away rights and making life harder for the LGBTQ community. Uh, particularly our young people in ways that are profound. Um, we, you know, first off have to work to, to get Donald Trump out of office uh, ASAP, but we need to do more than that. And and to me, that means, you know, making sure that we are going 
um, as, as far as we can here in Massachusetts to make sure that we have the right laws and policies in place. Um, you know, I, I, I just, uh, I, I'm so heartened when I think about you know, people like my friend, Mary Bonato, um, the work that she and the team did in the Goodrich case. Um, I later had a chance to work with her when we challenged uh, successfully the Defense of Marriage Act. Um, and, you know, I think about the faces of uh, the plaintiffs in those cases and their stories. I think about some of my personal heroes, like Jacob LeMay and his sister, Ella, who worked hard with our office to to pass the public accommodations law a few yeah. years ago. Um, you know, this is about taking care of people and helping people. And I am absolutely committed as a resident and certainly as attorney general to ensuring that in Massachusetts, LGBTQ people know that their government has their back, that we're going to be here uh, for the community and that we're going to work um, and fight like hell in the face of efforts by, you know, uh, in the face of bigotry um, and, and, and discrimination, including some perpetrated by our own federal government um, and the Trump administration, we're going to stand strong and, and take care of, of people and families here. So that is a good segue into the question of what do you think the priorities should be for the LGBTQ plus community in the years ahead? Well, I think some of it's going to be cleanup from the Trump administration's continued rollback of civil rights protections. We've seen them roll back civil rights protections in schools, in the military, in health in healthcare. Um, and so we're going to have do a lot of a lot of cleanup there to see those <clears throat> important rights and protections restored at the federal level. I think here in Massachusetts, we need to continue to work on um, campaigns directed at, at young people and supporting our young people. It saddens me that you know our LGBTQ youth um, uh, will suffer um, higher incidence of of, uh, of, of of mental health challenges of. Um, of suicide, for example, of bullying. And we've got to do a better job of putting in place and supporting the policies to uh, to stop that from happening. Um, I think that we've got an aging demographic here in the state. And, you know, we've got to make sure as we defend uh, health care and, and access to health care that uh, we take care of um, our, our aging uh, population in our in our community, and this includes housing, you know, which which is a really uh, worrisome thing for so many, um, but particularly in the LGBTQ community. And finally, I think that you know we need to um, recognize that you know we have to be vigilant. I mean, it's it's discouraging to me when I see uh, a rise in HIV rates. Um, and, you know, I think we, we just need to, to continue to look for places where, you know, uh, bad things are starting to happen and take the steps, uh, immediately to, to correct that. So, you know, that's, that's, I think where we should, should focus, um, in now and, and in the time ahead. Is there anything we do? You know, I don't, I don't think so. I just think that, you know, I always think about pride as, a great way to celebrate, reconnect with friends who, you know, you haven't seen in a while or, you know, friends you met uh, 20 years ago at a tea dance in, in P-Town, you know, I mean, there's this really fun celebratory aspect to all of it. 
And that's important, especially in this time of challenge um, where, you know, it's, it's kind of a dark time right now. Um, it's also always been a time for me to kind of re-energize, right? I always leave pride and particularly the parade, but feeling really great about um, where we've come, you know, and, and all the good that's happened and the fact that, you know, I meet, I meet uh, LGBTQ kids all the time. And I think about, boy, how different their life is um, from the lives of, of people in my generation growing up. Right. I mean, a lot of good has happened um, to, to make life better. Um, but there's a lot of work to do. And I also think of pride as sort of like the reset to sort of like, all right, let's take stock and let's, let's affirm and, and reaffirm our, our commitment to equality and uh, recommit to, to fighting like hell for what's right and to fight for, for justice and equality for, for all. And so, you know, virtual uh, uh, this year, but, you know, no less heartfelt in terms of, of, of the sentiment and, and also, you know, the opportunity and capacity for all of us to, to do good as we, as we move forward. just listen to the annual Pridecast by OA On Air and Boston Pride. We appreciate you taking the time to listen. To hear more, subscribe to OA On Air on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify. Happy Pride!